Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night, frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. But I promise all sorts of weirdness. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's dark enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, I got an interesting email with another story I had never heard before. So, as always, it sent me down some truly dark interweb rabbit holes. So, I hope you like it too. (laughs) Alright, with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours, so choose your poison accordingly. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say child, that will be a single shot. And every time I say dire, that will be a double shot. All right, now that we have the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. So, don your best corset. (coughs) Yep, you can't breathe. Okay, let go. All right. Maybe a top hat, a bustle, maybe a petticoat. Whatever floats your boat. As we dive into today's offering of The Baby Butcher, one of Victorian Britain's most evil murderers. Dum, dum, dum. You know, I got to throw some drama in there every now and again. All right. (laughs) That a man should kill a child is appalling that a woman should kill a child is unthinkable but a woman who kills eight children and perhaps many many more hmm where do we go with that amelia dyer was known as the reading baby farmer having once been a member of the salvation army She was a figure of trust to those parents or guardians who, over the years, accepted her offer to adopt unwanted children, and were more than happy to pay her the regular boarding fees for the child's upkeep. But their trust was badly shaken when in 1885, a boatman on the Thames noticed something unusual floating in the water. Rescuing it, he was shocked to find that, wrapped in a brown paper parcel, was a dead baby, with a tape tied tightly round its neck. The parcel bore an address, Mrs. Thomas, Piggott's Road, Lower Caversham. The police immediately went to the address, only to discover that their quarry had moved away and had, moreover, changed her name. Worse was to follow— For within the next few days, two more bodies were found floating in the river, each in a separate parcel, each having been strangled by the tape round their throat. In the widespread hunt that ensued, Mrs. Dyer, alias Thomas, 
alias Harding, alias Stanfield, was found, and when arrested on a charge of murdering a little girl by the name of Fry, admitted her guilt, adding, You'll know all mine by the tapes round their necks. That statement was tragically borne out when no fewer than a further four small corpses were fished out of the Thames, and it was suspected that there could have been many more similarly strangled over the years during which she had been a baby farmer, four more children having recently disappeared. But let's not jump too far ahead. Let's start at the beginning of the dastardly tale. And it all starts with an ad in a local newspaper. Yeah, those of you from, you know, the new generation, a newspaper is this really weird thing that was made out of paper that would get delivered to your house that had the news in it. Yeah, it was kind of like your phone, but on paper. Okay. Anyways, the advertisement in the miscellaneous column of the Bristol Times and Mirror newspaper was especially poignant, and it was worded as follows, and I quote, I should be glad to have a dear little baby girl, one I could bring up and call my own. First, I must tell you we are plain, homely people, in fairly good circumstance. We live in our own home. I have a good and comfortable home. We are out in the country, and sometimes I am alone a good deal. I do not want a child for money's sake, but for company and home comfort. Myself and my husband are dearly fond of children. I have no child of my own. A child with me will have a good home and a mother's love and care. We belong to the Church of England. Although I want to bring the child up as my own, I should not mind the mother or any other person coming to see the child at any time. It would be a satisfaction to see and know the child was getting on all right. I only hope we can come to terms. End quote. The latter offer of access was impossible, of course. Amelia Dyer repeatedly changing her name and address. Women who responded to the advertisement usually handed over a parcel of clothes, 10 pounds in cash, a considerable sum in those days, and the baby, which they would never see again. It was a sadly common request in Victorian Britain, where life was particularly hard for unmarried women. The ad had been placed by 25-year-old Evelina Marmon, who two months earlier, in January 1896, had given birth in a boarding house in Cheltenham to a little girl that she named Doris. Evelina was a God-fearing farmer's daughter who had gone astray, left the farm for city life, and resorted to work as a barmaid in the saloon of the Plough Hotel, an old coaching inn. With her blonde hair, busty figure, and quick wit, she was popular with its male customers, through which one of them made her pregnant, has gone unrecorded. And now she was deserted, with a baby she loved, but knew she could not bring up on her own. She would have to find a foster home for little Doris to have her adopted out, in the language of the time. Go back to work and hope in time to be able to reclaim her child. Quite by chance, and next to her own ad was another that read, Married couple with no family would adopt healthy child, nice country home, terms, 10 pounds. It seemed the answer to her prayers, and she quickly contacted the name at the bottom, a Mrs. Harding. From Oxford Road in Reading, 
Mrs. Harding replied in ecstatic terms. I should be glad to have a dear little baby girl, one I could bring up and call my own, she described her situation. We are plain, homely people in fairly good circumstance. I don't want a child for money's sake, but for company and home comfort. Ooh, does that sound familiar? I think so. Myself and my husband are dearly fond of children, yet have no child of our own. A child with me will have a good home and a mother's love. Mrs. Harding sounded every bit the respectable, caring woman that Evelina hoped to find for Doris, and she wrote at once, begging her not to consider anyone else until they had met. The reply came back, Rest assured, I will do my duty by that dear child. I will be a mother as far as lies in my power. It is just lovely here, healthy and pleasant. There is an orchard opposite our front door, and Evelina was welcome to visit whenever she wished. The only issue between them was that Evelina really wanted to pay a weekly fee for her daughter to be looked after, whereas Miss Harding preferred, indeed insisted on, a full adoption and a one-off payment in advance of ten pounds, for which I will take her entirely and she shall be of no further expense to you. Reluctantly, the desperate mother agreed, and a week later, Mrs. Harding, clutching a good warm shawl to wrap around baby in the train for it is bitter cold, arrived in Cheltenham. Evelina was surprised to discover that the woman she had been corresponding to was more elderly than she had expected and thick-set beneath her long cape, but she seemed affectionate as she swaddled little Doris in the shawl. Evelina handed over a cardboard box of clothes that she had packed, nappies, chemises, petticoats, frocks, nightgowns, and a powder box, and the ten pounds, and received in return a signed receipt. She accompanied Miss Harding to Cheltenham Station and then on to Gloucester, where she stood weeping amid the choking steam on the platform as the 5.20 p.m. train took her little girl away. She returned to her own lodgings a broken woman. A few days later, she had received a letter from Mrs. Harding saying that all was well. Evelina wrote back straight away. She never received a reply, though. Evelina and little Doris Marmon had fallen victim to the baby farmers. Infant mortality was high, and children's lives were cheap. Many families in straitened circumstances were happy to dispose of an infant to a new home and not ask too many questions about where and to whom it was going. Some, like Evelina, had every intention of retrieving their children. Others were just glad to see the back of them. One less mouth to feed, one less burden in the struggle to survive. They were prey to the unscrupulous, the immoral, and the murderous, and none was quite as chillingly evil as the caring woman, to whom Doris had just been entrusted. Mrs. Harding was one of the many aliases of Amelia Dyer, a hard-faced brute of a woman. In our child-centered society today, it's hard to comprehend a time where there were dead babies by the, da by the thousands, droves of missing Madeleines, scores of Myra Hindleys, and hardly anyone batting an eyelid. It was in such an environment that Amelia Dyer plied her gruesome trade for more than a quarter of a century. She was the angel maker, as she once explained to her own daughter, Polly, curious about the babies that kept appearing in the household and then just disappearing. She was sending little children to Jesus, she said, because he wanted them far more than their mother did. 
At 9 p.m., the train from Gloucester pulled into Paddington Station in London, not Reading, as she had told Doris's mother. And Dyer struggled off, carrying a carpet bag, the box of baby clothes, and the baby herself, whimpering in the shawl. She took a bus to Wilsden and got off at Mayo Road. At the door of number 76, she was greeted by her daughter Polly, now a grown-up married woman of 23. Once inside their rented room, Dyer lifted the lid of a work basket and rifled through the, tr- the tangle of threads and thimbles for some white edging tape, enough to wrap twice around the soft folds of Doris's neck. Next, the tape was pulled tight, held for a second, and then tied in a knot. Doris would have struggled until her limbs went limp, her mouth opening and closing in a last silent bid for life. Then she joined the scores, no one ever really knew exactly how many, that Dyer had already sent to their maker. The two women bound the body in a napkin, then picked over the clothes in the cardboard box, keeping the good items, earmarking the rest for the pawnbroker. From Evelina's ten pounds, Dyer paid the rent she owed to her unwitting landlady and even gave her a pair of child's boots as a present for her little girl. The very next day, Wednesday, April the 1st, 1896, another infant, 13-month-old Harry Simons, was brought to Mayo Road in return for a 10-pound payment. This time there was no spare tape to be found in the work basket, so the knot was unpicked around Nor- Doris's neck and the same white length used to strangle him. The following evening, the two corpses were stuffed one on top of the other, into Dyer's carpet bag and weighted down with bricks. Then she took the bus to Paddington and the train to Reading. There she lugged her heavy load through the streets down to the river and a lonely spot she knew very well, by a footbridge over a weir at Caversham Lock. In the darkness she pushed the bag through the railings until it fell, and she heard it smack into the waters beneath. As she turned to leave, a man hurried past on his way home and called out good night. Later, his evidence at the Old Bailey would help send 58-year-old Dyer to the gallows. Unlike many of her generation, Amelia Dyer was not the product of grinding poverty. No, she was born in a small village near Bristol in 1838, daughter of a master shoemaker, and learned to read and write and had a love of literature and poetry. She trained as a nurse, a grueling job, but a skilled and respectable one. From a midwife, she learned of a less arduous way of earning a living, providing lodgings in her own home for young women who, in an unforgiving age, were pregnant outside of wedlock. From the moment their bump began to show, they were shunned by polite society or sacked if they were in work. So, for a fee, unscrupulous businesses offered to take in these young women and see them through to the birth. After the mothers left, their unwanted babies would be looked after as nurse children. The money differed. If the girl was from a well-off background, with parents anxious to keep her plight secret, it could be as much as 80 pounds. Or, say, 50 pounds if the father of the child was prepared to contribute in order to hush up his involvement. But more often, these were impoverished girls whose immorality meant even the workhouse wouldn't take them in. And for them, the deal might be done for a fiver. To cut costs, the farmed-out babies were starved, and to reduce the aggravation of looking after them, they were sedated with easily available alcohol and opiates. 
Godfrey's cordial, a syrup laced with laudanum and known colloquially as the quietness, was a favorite to put a child fast asleep. And if the child died, well, so be it. And most did, sooner or later. One such establishment was described with horror by a police officer who uncovered it in Brixton, London. In one room, five, three, and four-week-old infants were lying in filth, three under a shawl on a sofa, and two stuffed into a small crib. They were ashen-faced and emaciated like miniature crones, their bones visible through transparent skin. They lay open-mouthed in a state of tupor, eyes glazed, scarcely even human. What chilled the policeman was the silence. Instead of the noises to be expected from children of tender age, they were lying without a moan from their wretched lips and apparently dying. Five infants were in, a, in another room in slightly better condition because a weekly fee was still being exacted for them instead of the single premium that had been paid for the ones encouraged to die quickly. However immoral this business, and the immorality usually stretched to those who deposited children there, in full realization of their fate, it was one much in demand and lucrative. There was a pile of cash to be made here, as Amelia Dyer realized. Her own particular refinement was not to bother with letting the children die through neglect and starvation, but to murder them straight away and pocket all the money. Year on year, Dyer dodged the police and the inspectors of the newly formed NSPCC. She was caught once after a doctor was called to certify the death of one child too many and raised the alarm. But instead of manslaughter, she was convicted of causing a child to die by neglect and served six months hard labor in prison, an experience that nearly destroyed her. After that, she tried going back to nursing. She had spells in mental hospitals after suicide attempts, but always she returned to baby farming, eventually drawing her own family into the business. She stopped calling doctors to issue death certificates and disposed of the bodies secretly. They moved homes frequently, Bristol, Reading, Cardiff, London, as often as they scented the police closing in or mothers and fathers on their trail trying to reclaim their children. The killing stopped only after a bargeman piloting a cargo up the Thames at Reading saw a brown paper parcel lying in shallow water near the bank. He fished it out with a boat hook, pulled at one end, and a leg and a tiny human foot appeared. A police inspection revealed the body of a little girl, aged 6 to 12 months. White tape was knotted round her neck. One piece of the brown paper had a railway label on it from Temple Mead Station, Bristol and the faint outline of handwriting, a name, Mrs. Thomas, and an address in Reading could just be made out. Four days later, on April 3rd, Good Friday, police raided that address and were immediately struck by the stench of human decomposition, though no body could be found. When her house was searched by the police, no less than 300 weights, 336 pounds people, of children's clothing were found, together with a large number of pawn tickets for baby clothes. But white tape was, in a sewing basket, and in cupboards were bundles of telegrams arranging adoptions, pawn tickets for children's clothing, receipts for advertisements, and letters from mothers inquiring after their little ones. In the past few months alone, they worked out, 20 children at least had been placed in the care of Mrs. Thomas, now revealed to be Amelia Dyer. 
The police had arrived just in time. She was about to do a moonlight flit again, this time to Somerset. The body found by the bargee turned out to be that of Helena Fry, illegitimate offspring of Mary Fry, a servant girl from Bristol and a well-to-do local merchant. The child had been handed over to Dyer at Bristol Temple Mead Station on March the 5th. But when Dyer got home to Reading that evening, all she had with her was a brown paper parcel two feet long. She hid it in the house until, after three weeks, the smell became unbearable. Then she was seen leaving the house with the parcel, saying she was going to the pawn shop. In fact, she threw the bundle in the river. But it did not sink, as the bargee discovered. The river was now dragged. Three tiny bodies were found, then the carpet bag with Doris and Harry inside, her latest victims. The next day, Evelina Marmon, whose name had cropped up in Dyer's correspondence, was brought to Reading and identified her daughter on the mortuary slab. It had been a mere eleven days since she had entrusted her child to Mrs. Harding. She was in perfect health when she was sent away, was all the distraught woman could mutter. In May... 1896, Amelia appeared in court charged with murdering a four-month-old baby girl named Doris Marmon and the boy Harry Simons. Her plea that she was insane was not accepted, the jury taking only five minutes to find her guilty, and she was sentenced to death. Confident of a reprieve, doubtless because of her age, she was 57 at the time, she spent her time in the condemned cell praying and writing poems, only one of which survives, and I quote, By nature, Lord, I know with grief, I am a poor, fallen leaf, shriveled and dry, near on to death, driven with sin as with a breath. But if by grace I am made new, washed in the blood of Jesus too, like to a lily I shall stand, spotless and pure, at his right hand. And not content with the hypocritical tone of the verse, she had the appalling gall to sign it, Mother. In accordance with the regulations, which stipulated that executions should take place at 8 a.m. on the first day after the intervention of three Sundays from the day on which the sentence was passed, in this case, June the 10th of 1896, Amelia herself was taken into care. James Billington, the public executioner, a muscular ex-coal miner, having temporarily adopted her. He escorted her up the steps of the scaffold behind the high walls of Newgate Prison, and there guided her onto the trapdoors where he hooded her. The prison bell had already been tolling for the past 15 minutes and would continue to do so for the same length of time after the execution had taken place. Crowds had gathered outside, waiting to see the regulatory black flag, which would be raised on the prison's flagpole at the moment the trapdoors opened, and also within the next few minutes to read the certificate of death, which had to be displayed near the principal entrance to the prison. They didn't have to wait long, for Billington never wanted to linger, and no doubt recalling the manner in which Amelia Dyer had strangled her helpless charges, positioned his version of a tape the noose, around her neck, and swiftly operated the drop, sending the cold-blooded killer plummeting into the depths of the pit. Dyer was hung at Newgate Prison after a trial in which her plea of insanity was rejected. Her daughter gave graphic evidence that ensured her conviction, while for some reason going unpunished herself, for reasons that are still not clear. The jury again was only out for four and a half minutes before condemning her to death,
the details of which had done of what she had done caused a scandal. Stricter adoption laws gave local authorities the power to place baby farms and stamp out abuse. Personal ads of newspapers were to be scrutinized. But baby trafficking did not stop. Two years after Dyer's execution, railway workers inspecting carriages shunted into a siding at Newton Abbey from the Plymouth Express found a parcel tied up with string. Inside was a three-week-old girl, cold and wet, but just barely alive. She was the daughter of a widow, Jane Hill, and had been given to a woman named Mrs. Stewart for 12 pounds. Mrs. Stewart had written, The little one would have a, have a good home and a parent's love and care. Then she had picked up the baby at Plymouth and dumped her on the next train. And who was the elusive Mrs. Stewart? None other, it was thought, than Polly, Amelia Dyer's daughter. And the evil lived on. And whether Amelia's spirit departed with her, though, is another matter. It being rumored that her ghost haunted the chief warder's office for some years following her own execution. But on that note, my darlings, we have come to the end of our episode. I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts about today's episode. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you want to share your thoughts about today's episode, or you're just bored and you need somebody to chat with, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, that's all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, don't forget to tune in next time. See ya, my heathens. I love ya. We don't sugarcoat shit. (laughs) This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.